Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. And so I have to understand that a teenager maybe in the United States is going to spend a lot of time on YouTube or on Snapchat or on Instagram and probably not over on Facebook and some of the other apps that have, you know, fallen out of favor with young generations over time, right? So Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm Jeff Phillips, your host. And I'm Aubrey Byron. A quick warning for today's episode, we may be discussing subject matter that our audience could find troubling. Discretion is advised. So today joining us is Griffin Glynn. Uh, Griffin is an OSINT practitioner with more than 20 years of experience. He's also known on Twitter by the handle Hatless Wonder. He's also an OSINT blogger a trainer, and most notably, though, the Chief Investigations Officer at the National Child Protection Task Force. Griffin, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much, Jeff and Aubrey. I appreciate being here. Now, Griffin, most of the people we talk to come to OSINT from a military or a public sector background. You actually started in the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started uh, practicing OSINT? Sure, I can definitely do that. Um, yeah, like most people, I think that have been in OSINT for a long time, I was, I was doing it before I knew that it was actually a thing or that it had a name. Uh, so in my, my previous career, I worked for 20 years, uh, in a corporation as a corporate investigator and somewhere along the way, I started doing online research to support my casework and, uh, didn't know at the time that that was, uh, a discipline of any sort or a community or any of the things that we all know now, um, but I uh, attended a training at one point by a police officer named Michael Bazell, who was just getting started in the world of open source intelligence. And listening to him talk about what he did made me realize that what I was doing was a very watered down version of where he was at at the time. Uh, and so that sort of started my my journey, my, my passion, my dedication to being a consummate learner uh, and um, sort of uh, information gatherer slash hoarder when it comes to intelligence uh, and open source, especially uh, secrets, tips, tricks, you name it. Well, that that's great. Like I said, it, it is interesting to see someone come just with a passion that, that they built on their own as compared to like the coming out of the formal training. But that leads me to, to asking, I know that is part of your work in addition to the very important work of finding missing children at the NCPTF. But part of that is offering training to, to law enforcement um, who you guys work very closely with. Can you tell us a little bit about OSINT and law enforcement and and what that training looks like? Um, how, you know, are people coming in um, with a lot of knowledge? Um, do they even know what OSINT is? Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, 
how, how you interact with law enforcement when it, and training them when it comes to those. Sure. So um, in my capacity at the National Child Protection Task Force, I do a lot of law enforcement training and we definitely gear our training towards the type of casework that we support, which is missing, exploited, and trafficked children and human trafficking. And so those types of cases are different than a lot of traditional law enforcement work in that when you're looking for a missing child, for example, you can't go to a law enforcement database and query that person and find an address history or their phone number and things like that. It just doesn't work that way because we're talking about children. And so the approach has to be, how do you find their online presence? Where do they have social media accounts? Who are they connected to? Where's their interactivity? And then, you know, within some of the other um, folks in the task force uh, that have different backgrounds, we can bring that expertise from, say, a prosecutor or somebody who worked in a DA's office or a police detective to be able to um, show the juxtaposition of the open source intelligence, finding the online presence and the legal process that is then served to those uh, data providers in order to be able to find things like where is this Snapchat account connecting to in terms of IP address? Uh, or what information does somebody like Google or Meta have about this particular person's email um, in connection to accounts and things that can help move the investigator towards locating the person, um, finding those accounts and things like that. So it's, it's, uh, it's complementary to a lot of traditional police work. Uh, but it's very undertrained in my experience when it comes to law enforcement because there's a lot of traditional sort of institutionalized knowledge in that in that culture, uh, and that's where I really enjoy being able to um, to help people grow those skills, especially people that have been doing investigative work a long time and have their tried and true methods, which by all means they should keep doing and and work really well. But when you complement them with really powerful open source intelligence, uh, you know, foundational. Uh, understanding of, of how to do things. You can speed things up. You can find information you couldn't in other ways. And in a lot of cases, you can make a difference, especially in um, missing children cases, you can make a difference in someone's life uh, very quickly that you may not have been able to with traditional means. I, I love how you frame open source intelligence in, in terms of law enforcement as, as being complementary, right? Which makes a lot of sense from when they're they're doing investigations on the street, um, but so much, especially in this area um, that we're talking about, that happens online. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about the types of? So they're probably new to this and doing open source intelligence. What kind of techniques um, do you focus on? Like, how do you take? They're probably not experts, OSIN experts. So, how how do you go about building on that? Do you give them specific techniques? Is it? You know, how do you get them started uh, to help themselves? Yeah. So I really spend a lot of time thinking about what foundational um, and very practical and very accessible techniques or resources are going to be most useful to the person that I'm teaching. And that's not just for law enforcement, that's for any type of training that I'll do. And, uh, you know, the reason is I could go up in front of a room and I could uh, tell them great stories of all the, the, the one time I threw that Hail Mary and I found the you know, they're very hard to find piece of information that you'll never look for again in that way. Or, um, you know, tell them very obscure tools that do things that they won't ever need. And then they walk out of the room and they don't really have any value added to their, to their arsenal. What I like to do is, is find those foundational things that people are doing repetitively in open source research and teach them how to do them very well, very efficiently, 
um, and gear the examples of the way that I'm teaching towards the type of casework that they do. For example, if I'm teaching a, a class of uh, law enforcement professionals who are investigating human trafficking, I may give them examples of things like um, online ad sites that feature um, you know, people that are potentially being trafficked through an escort service and things like that. And so I'm showing them how to work with things like uh, advanced search operators in Google or how to perform email and phone number lookups on different services. But I'm giving them sort of that uh, that that real life understanding of this is what it looks like in practice. I'm very big on methodology and teaching that um, sort of trade craft. Um, and I really like to give people something that they can actually use tomorrow on the next case, as opposed to something that they have to try and remember six months from now if something obscure comes up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned social media and uh, Snapchat. I know what kinds of social media platforms do you focus on and your research with NCBTF? Well, we really go where the, the person is. Um, and because our work takes us all around the world, part of what I have to do at times is figure out what sorts of social media apps are popular in certain parts of the world, right? Because what I use on a daily basis is representative of uh, a person in my, in my country, in my age bracket, in my culture and things like that. Uh, but that doesn't have anything to do a lot of times with the person I'm trying to find halfway around the world. So, you know, part of it is understanding where to go look um, to find out what apps are popular. Uh, in some cases, I'm starting at ground zero with something that I've never worked with before. But that doesn't mean that I can't take the methodologies and understandings that I have of other apps and other types of uh, OSINT research that I do and apply it to a new platform that I'm just joining up to with a covert account and things like that. So, Really, uh, it, it depends on the person. You know, when you're talking about uh, younger folks these days, uh, my social media habits are different than a teenager's, for example. And so I have to understand that a teenager maybe in the United States is going to spend a lot of time on YouTube or on Snapchat or on Instagram and probably not over on Facebook and some of the other apps that have, you know, fallen out of favor with young generations over time, right? So it's really a, it's really an understanding and, and making no assumptions. Uh, that's one thing that can really um, hamper a, a good OSINT investigator is bringing your assumptions and biases in and letting them influence the way that you go look for information. You have to really take an open-minded approach to each investigation and sort of assume nothing because you really don't know what's going to be out there. So it, it's keeping you hip, huh? <laughs> Every time I say that, somebody gives me a weird look, but I agree with you. <laughs> um, no, with with respect to the very sensitive nature of the work you do, could you give us an example of how you used a social media platform to find a lead? Sure, yeah. Um, boy, there's, there's lots of times. Um, you know, recently I worked an investigation where I started out with an image of somebody that we were trying to uh, we'll just say locate their online presence, right? And I may have to be a little bit cagey about how I describe this um, because of, that's nature. Um, but uh, so I, I had a photograph of this person and they were at an event and I needed to identify them and find out more about them, find their presence online. And because I didn't know who they were, I had to use contextual clues from the imagery from that event in order to be able to determine what it was. Uh, for example, there was um, an item on the table um, that would be like a, a program for the event, right? That let me know where it was and who it was for and things like that. So 
Using that information, I located people in social media. Using their social media accounts, I located folks that were in the photo with this individual so that I can make the connection back to who I thought he was. And then through a lot of really long research, um, you know, over several days, I was able to uh, determine what I thought was probably his real name based on a prior marriage to one of the people in the photos. Um, unfortunately, he had almost no online presence at all. And I struck out for hours and hours and hours trying to find information on this person. And then I went back and I took stock of what I had and I started to go through my sort of mental checklist. And I was using different search engines from different parts of the world that might capture information differently, right? Because not everything is going to be in Google. One of these other search engines located me um, a very barren social media profile um, on kind of a niche um, site that had this person's real name on it. And they also had a user handle. And now I know that a lot of people will use um, like their Google account, for example, to sign up for certain services online, you know, where you get that pop-up box that says, do you want to set up an account or do you want to just press the Google button? So I was hoping maybe this person had done that. And I took that handle, I popped it in front of the at gmail.com domain, and I plugged it into several um, email tools, um, like the Epios email tool, OSINT Industries, and things like that. And sure enough, it actually led me to an account that he had for Airbnb, which had his profile photo in it that I was able to match to my original image and then track several of his travels to parts of the world that I was interested in. And it ended up being the thing that really broke the research wide open for me after many, many frustrating hours. And it came from something as simple as a little social media profile that had no content or anything useful other than this person's name. Wow. Wow, exactly. And the stick to I can, I can imagine, like you said, hours and hours uh, and uh, and then the big break. That's super interesting. Um, you, you said something, Griffin, while... Um, you were describing that you mentioned covert accounts. Um, sometimes you know, people call them sock puppets. Um, not everyone can use um, covert accounts, but it just opens up a, a little broader of a question for me. Um, again, when you're dealing with law enforcement, and I'm not picking on law enforcement, there's lots of um, professions that um, are not experts in open source intelligence. So I'm curious about operational security or OPSEC. Um, and, and, you know, the safety part of that training, how important is that in, in, uh, in your world and in these investigations with law enforcement? Sure. Absolutely. And, and you're right. Uh, the reality is none of us are experts in open source intelligence, right? We all have our, our niches of expertise when it comes to it. And hopefully we're students of all the rest of it, right? So many disciplines use, uh, open source intelligence in different ways and to different levels. And the learning curve is different for us all. Um, regarding OPSEC, that is definitely top of mind when we're talking about the type of casework that I do for NCPTF. Uh, at, at any point, it's very easy to, uh, to compromise an investigation by having some type of interactivity online, especially when you're dealing with a person who is missing, uh, or maybe does not want to be found, or maybe is, um, is, is under the, um, under the control of someone else. And uh, sometimes making contact like following an account or friending an account or sending a message and things like that could, could je uh, jeopardize an investigation. So we have very strict rules internally about how we handle 
uh, uh, open source intelligence research from a no touch point of view where we don't have that interactivity. Uh, there are times in the law enforcement world where it's appropriate to have um, interactivity with with target accounts or communities and things like that. But, you know, we're very careful about that in our work because we want to respect the boundaries of, uh, first of all, what makes sense, but also what the agency uh, is comfortable with and, you know, what they would what they would like in terms of support. We're never going to do anything that's that's going to cause a problem. So. Uh, when you do this type of work, you have to uh, think about hardening your systems. You have to think about um, covert profiles, those sock puppet personas, if you're able to do that. Uh, you think about what you backstop all of those with. So do you have to backstop that account with a phone number? Um, does that phone number tie to something else about you? Do you have to backstop it with an email? Um, you know, Can you use a throwaway email or do you have to get uh, a one that, that could be tied back to you again? So, you know, there's there's workarounds years ago, we, we could teach a, a templated version of this is how you create a fake Facebook account. And this is what you give them when they ask you these questions, right? It just doesn't work like that anymore. Uh, what if you and I did the same thing, we might get different experiences. And, um, you know, there are things that, that may work for some people that don't work for others. And, uh, part of it is tenacity and part of it is under understanding your threat model. So what are you really trying to hide and who are you trying to hide it from? Where uh, it's in cases you may not have to hide your backstopped information um, from the data service provider um, as long as it's going to be hidden from the end user that you would interact with. Um, I always plan for the uh, the inevitable data breach that's going to happen whenever I set up an account somewhere, and I think about what will happen the day that that data is released. Will it tie back to me? You know, is there other considerations? Right. Well, and you mentioned some of the complexities and and. And, you know, there's, there's two factor challenges and, you know, log insights can, are getting really good at, at, at understanding what are fake emails or, you know, um, voice over IP phone numbers. And this isn't a class in how to break anybody's terms of service by any means, but what, what from an OPSEC side, what can concern me, I've, I've heard in scenarios, uh, in chatting with individuals where someone in law enforcement well, then default to go, well, I, I have a Facebook account or an Instagram account. I can just go check on that person using my own personal account, whether that's from their work laptop, their personal machine or a phone. Um, and you don't, and you don't want to do that either. Right. I know that's now you haven't created anything fake, but you know, there's, there's, we all know how much advertising follows us around and what all's being tracked, or hopefully you, under, you can take that kind of understanding look. Everyone thinks Google is listening to them now and popping up ads. Imagine if you just use your own accounts to go and and take a quick, innocent look that those connections made. Um, and that's not good for you or the investigation. Yep. It's definitely a double-edged sword um, in, in my world because uh, from the example that you gave, uh, an officer uh, looking up a suspect's Facebook profile might get them suggested to that person as a friend later on, right? So that's a, that's a major offset concern. On the flip side, if I'm looking for a missing child and they've accessed their Facebook account from somebody's device at a different house, Meta is going to have data for me that's going to be very valuable in finding that person. Um, and so if you know how to ask those questions and you have the legal authority to get that information, sometimes it can be a lifesaver. Oh, that's interesting. Great point. Hmm. We talked a little bit about this with your colleague who was on the show, Jessica Smith, who was great, by the way. Um, but I think it's a really important and frankly under-resourced topic that I wanted to ask you as well. 
In such an emotionally devastating field, how do you protect your mental health? Oh boy. Yeah, it's it, it's really something that absolutely has to be top of mind for anyone who does this work and wants to continue to do this work. Um, I am not shy about talking about mental health and about my own mental health and protecting it and things like that. Uh, I visit a therapist every single week to talk about things I need to talk about in my life. Uh, unfortunately, my work takes me into some pretty dark places when we talk about child exploitation crimes and things like that. Um, and so for me, it's it's having that professional, that outlet, that person that I can talk to, but also somebody uh, who is equipped to be able to help me recognize how to take care of myself. Uh, and also uh, to be able to um, speak openly with my colleagues and the people around me who might recognize a change in my behavior uh, or my habits that could be uh, indicative of some type of underlying trauma that I need to deal with and things like that. So uh, this is applicable to to so many different professions that do so much, uh, such a, a myriad of different types of research. I think about the people that look into war crimes and the atrocities that happen in, uh, in the world and, and the awful, horrible things that you see that are available to you online. Um, and there is an education that can, can happen there, uh, you know, I've had things shared with me over the years that have helped, um, for example, uh, watching a video with no sound on or looking at imagery in black and white as opposed to color. Now, I don't ever come in contact with actual uh, abuse material myself as a, as a non-law enforcement person. Um, but in some cases, you know, I may be exposed to the related text that came with a post from a dark web forum uh, or information, you know, in writing about, about something that's happened to children. And even that text, I can assure you, is some very damaging stuff at times. And uh, for me, I plan to do this for a very long time, as long as I possibly can. And that means I need to take care of myself and the people around me that I work with. 100%. It, 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 this, this conversation and this topic kind of links me to something we had talked about earlier, um, you know, when we were prepping for the, for the podcast, um, we got into a little bit about vigilante, OSINT, um, and, and that puts a negative spin, but on, on amateurs trying to help out, be it like the war in Ukraine, or if it is trying to, um, help with missing and exploited children. And so now, you know, you bring up, gosh, if you're doing that as an amateur and are you, do you have the systems and tools and backstops in place and therapy to, to deal with some of that stuff on the, on the flip side, you've got, you know, you don't, you're trying to help. Um, and there are things that, uh, you as an, and as a professional in doing this with the NCPTF that, um, you know, you work directly with law enforcement. So I guess my question is, you know, what kind of advice would you give to someone who, who is trying to help out, um, with either in your specific area with child exploitation or, and they're out trying to help with the war in Ukraine, um, cold cases, you just see a lot of amateur OSIN going out there on their own. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, the great thing about all of that is that it's well-intentioned um, and that the, those people are looking to make a difference in their community or in the world. And honestly, that's why I'm here doing what I do. And that's why the people around me are doing what they do. So, you know, kudos to those people that have that inspiration to get up and go do something. Um, it, what I will say is that there are a lot of, uh, of very credible, very well-recognized organizations that are doing work that can make use of people's initiative and skills 
Uh, so if they are a skilled researcher and could contribute, there's lots of nonprofits out there um, that are doing great work around uh, the topics of exploitation, trafficking, missing uh, people and things like that. And there's, there's great ways to contribute there. There are times where law enforcement will specifically ask for crowd support. You know, can you identify this person? Uh, they may post it on their socials. Uh, we've seen that here in the U.S. with the government from the, the Capitol riots, trying to um, identify people involved in that. So there is, uh, there is a role to be played there. Um, but, you know, as you can see, if you, if you go out and do a little research on the headlines, it's a slippery slope um, and it can, lead to, it can lead to problematic situations that are, are not what people set out to do, but, but might find them anyway. So uh, there, are, there are ways to protect yourself and ways to protect the investigation. And I would, um, I would encourage people that want to help to find an organization that will, um, that will help them utilize their skills um, in the best way possible so that their impact is maximized and, uh, and they don't ever get into any um, sticky situations or, or otherwise, you know, compromise a case. Are there, um, I know that NCPTF, uh, you know, isn't always looking for volunteers and that um, when we talk to Jessica, it sounds like there's, you know, a little bit of you need to already be a professional and kind of there's some requirements there. Um, are there other organizations or areas where people, if they're looking for that, could um, try to find a way to help? Sure, sure. You know, we if you go to the NCPTF socials, we talk about a number of other nonprofits that we work with and support. And there are there are groups that are doing um, that are doing support of uh, trafficking survivors of, um, you know, uh, investigative work to help missing children and things like that, that touch on different points of the, the sort of the process. It's not all just investigative support. So, you know, for example, one of my favorite nonprofits to talk to people about is, um, an organization called Room Redux, R-E-D-U-X, which is, uh, formed by a friend of ours named Susie. And the first time I heard about Room Redux, I was just like floored that I had never considered this concept before. What they do is uh, they transform the rooms of children who have been abuse victims. And the reason they do that is because oftentimes the child is going back into the environment where they were abused and they're going back into that room with the memories and the, you know, the horrible things that happened to them. And so Room Redux uh, has little coalitions of volunteers around the United States, um, and they're growing rapidly, by the way, who will... Um, uh, take donations and they will bring in volunteers over the course of one day and completely transform a child's room and environment to look absolutely nothing the way, you know, like the way that it did before so that that child comes into that sort of that reset, that restart. And I'm not doing it as much justice as Susie would do, but um, just the concept of that and the impact that it can have for survivors of, of abuse and victimization it's mind blowing to me, you know, I could do my part here in the investigative world, but what happens to the, to the victims afterwards? What happens to a human trafficking victim after they have that, um, have that interactivity with law enforcement and they move on? What kind of resources are there? There's, there is a need to support all aspects of, of that system, that sort of continuum. And so I would encourage people to find something that speaks to you and to your purpose and and what you really identify with, find an organization that's doing the work uh, that you would like to do and just ask if you can get involved. That's incredible. I Yeah, I think as this 
subject kind of makes its way into the lexicon and popular culture or imagination in some cases, you really don't hear that much about recovery and that long process. Sure, sure. And in, in my work, it's been, uh, that's been a, a learning curve for me, right? So, you know, when I started doing this type of investigative work, my only focus was on the investigation. How's it going to end? How do I, how do I catch the bad person? How do I uh, help, you know, the child be rescued and things like that? But what I realized is that there's so much more happening, uh, so much more that happens after the fact. And so the the better in touch I can be with the survivor-focused perspective, um, with understanding what what that experience is like for them, because I don't, I can never have that firsthand perspective, but I can work with and talk to and understand those people that do so that I can incorporate that message into my own training and try to bring that light to people who are in the same shoes that I was in just a couple years ago. Well, shifting gears slightly, uh, one of the things that you're most well known for maybe is your Start Me page. For those who may not be familiar, it's a collection of really invaluable links and tools for conducting OSINT. Um, we'll be sure to link to it in our show notes. But what are some of the tools or pages that you highly recommend for practitioners? Sure. Um, so in my Start Me, I have a section of tool sets and resources, and each one of those, I, I would say there's probably close to 50 in there now, each one of them are an aggregation, somebody else's collection of links and tools. And I am a link hoarder, that's for sure. I have my own collection of many thousands of links that I've tried to categorize. But uh, what I realized is there's people that have put a lot of time and effort into doing that already. And why reinvent that wheel when I have so many other wheels that I could reinvent? So... I've collected their collections and the ones that I really like um, are sort of dependent on the type of case that I'm working because there are some in there that are regionally specific to certain parts of the world, um, topic specific to certain disciplines of investigation. Um, I, I really like the cyber detective tool collection, uh, cyber detective on, on Twitter, uh, and that's going to be uh, hosted on GitHub under Cypher387. Uh, GitHub. So I'm sure we can provide that link too. But I like the way that she categorizes the um, the sections of the information, making it easy for somebody like me to pop in there and grab uh, tools for YouTube and things like that. Um, Technizet is another who has a great, well-known collection um, that's very well categorized. For me, I like that sort of organization that helps me get to the answer faster so that I can try a few things out. Um, but they're, they're really great. And there are uh, a lot of different um, Start Me pages or aggregated collections of links out there and tools to search them. I, I think that um, you could find, anybody could find anything that they ever needed in there. Uh, it is buyer beware, right? So I'm not responsible for all the links on those pages and the tools and what happens in your browser when you use them, but definitely suggest that people go in there and look around and see what they can find. I, I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned again, if I back you you had this great kind of moment um you spent hours and hours and, and you came across that kind of low-key social media site that gave you the username or the, a login account that kind of unlocked things i guess can you give some advice to researchers um when they're working on a case uh, uh and they reach a dead end uh how you know how to react how to find a way forward i mean on one hand i get it in your world i mean there's there's the i can imagine you have a you probably have a problem stopping because you're dealing with missing children, but you know, I might be a cybersecurity analyst. It's not life-threatening in that case, but maybe at a high level, again, everyone's going to reach a dead end. How do you react? How do you go 
go forward again. Sure. Uh, I reached that dead end point many times throughout an engagement. Uh, and I wish that I could write more about the amount of time I spent failing doing OSINT work uh, as opposed to the, the cool, successful stories of here's how I found the thing, because that's the reality of the work. It's mostly going to be failure or not finding things or, you know, changing your queries in order to be able to get to the answer. And that's where, for me, the, the real magic is at in terms of, of skill. Um, I, uh, I think that having that mentality of believing that there's going to be information out there is a huge driver in keeping me going. So, uh, I also will do this thing where I'll recognize that I've kind of hit a wall and I will always back up to a point where I had some stuff to work with and I'll take the stock of all those different, um, selectors or whatever information I had at that point And I'll say, okay, let me take each of these pieces individually. I, maybe I'm on a social media profile and I have a name, a profile photo. I have some interactivity from other people and some written content. And I'll say, what can I do with each of those four components one at a time? And have I done that yet? Have I looked at that person's name in some more obscure places? Uh, have they ever, you know, registered a website? Did I run their name through other search engines? Did I look through, um, you know, business records and things like that. Then I'll move on to the photo, right? Have I reverse image searched it in multiple places? Have I analyzed that for, um, for other contextual clues and so on? And I'll take each of those four points and I'll, and I'll back up and I'll take stock of what I have and I'll sort of go into my mental toolbox and I'll think, what are all the things that I know how to do with, um, with this emoji text, right? Because, um, a lot of the content that I deal with is coming from young people and people might not realize that you can search emoji text in lots of different places. You can search in Google for emojis. You can search on Facebook for emojis. You can search on Instagram for emojis. So maybe this person's bio has a set of emoji characters that are unique to them or maybe a group that they affiliate with. And, you know, just having those sort of layers that are built upon the, the foundational stuff that you do 90% of the time, um, I think that that really makes a difference. But you really have to get that 90% down um, that foundational learning base that I, I preach on quite a bit because that's what you do most of the time. And then when you get stuck, that's when you back up and you think, okay, what was that obscure thing that Griffin wrote about that one time in that blog? All right, now I'm going to go look that up and try it or, you know, something like that. Right. Right. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and Griffin, um, this has been super interesting, um, a super interesting chat. Um, as we wrap up though, I did want to give you an opportunity. Is there, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with before we, uh, Put another bow on an episode here of Needle Stack. Sure. You know, the thing that that's um, for me really paramount is that open source intelligence is something that everyone can do. It applies to so many different careers and, um, you know, different types of, of work and, and needs and things like that. So if, if OSINT is something that speaks to you, then go out there and find ways to learn the way that you learn. Uh, we're not all visual learners. We're not all uh, auditory learners. You know, some of us like to do hands-on things. Go on and figure out who's teaching the way that you like to learn and then invest your time in learning that way. I, you know, even as a, a let's just say many year practitioner of OSINT, right? I don't want to date myself too much. <laughs> I still spend time going back to my fundamentals and making sure that they're rock solid testing those things out, 
making sure that there's not something that I'm that I'm forgetting and um, that I need to to relearn. I think about all the time, like somebody like Tiger Woods, for example, at some point has gotten a coach, you know, a, a guy who can probably beat at one point beat everybody, but maybe five people on earth with like absolute consistency is going to go to a coach. What for? Well, they're not going to stand in the woods and, you know, swing the club backwards, you know, the opposite direction to hit a crazy shot that'll come up one in a million. They're going to stand on the tee box and they're going to work on your stance, your grip, your fundamentals. And this is a person who's at the highest level of his profession. So how can I incorporate that mindset into my own learning? And that's what I would encourage people to do too, is take the fundamentals seriously and uh, take your learning seriously. And you know, go out there and be the best that you can be because you bring something unique to this job that I can't bring. doesn't matter who you are and who I am. We all bring something different. Well, Griffin, thank you so much for sharing um, your expertise and your experiences today. Um, and also thank you for your work with the National Child Protection Task Force. Um, these last two podcasts have been super enlightening and, and uh, to, to Aubrey and I and hopefully uh, to, to all of our listeners. So again, thank you for your time. Um, and thanks to the audience for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can view transcripts and other episode info on our website, authenticate.com slash needle stack. That's authentic with the number eight.com slash needle stack. Uh, be sure to let us know your thoughts on X, formerly known as Twitter, at needle stack pod is where you can find us and to like and subscribe wherever you're listening today. So we'll see you next time on Needlestack.